Good morning, everyone. This is, these are not uh, Dr. Brooklyn or myself. These are actually my twins. Um, they are now 12 years old, and this, they represent uh, my own personal case control study because this guy on the left here had a brief anesthetic at the age of two years old. So we'll be uh, prospectively following him throughout his lifetime. Um, if any of you happen to fall asleep during this talk, that's fine. As an anesthesiologist, that's a sign of uh, professional competency for me. So go ahead and nod off. Uh-oh. You need, a, you, need, you need an ex-chief resident to do that. So no financial disclosures. I, I do have a conflict of interest, I suppose. If I stand here and tell you that we shouldn't be do, doing anesthesia on kids anymore, I'm going to probably be out of a job. Um, it's bad enough that my pro profession was once called uh, a controlled poisoning. Um, what we are going to talk about here is I'm going to quickly give you a historical framework um, giving you the history leading up to the concern for neurotoxicity and pediatric anesthesia. I'll, we'll also try to give you some ideas to help answer parents' questions when they're posed. Um, and then we'll bring uh, Dr. Brooklyn up, um, and he'll, he's going to help try to explain what exactly we're talking about when we say neurotoxicity. Thirty years ago, surgery was commonly performed on awake or paralyzed infants and children without the benefits of analgesics, sedatives, or anesthetics. This practice was justified by a fear that these drugs would increase the risk of adverse surgical outcomes and the belief that infants did not experience pain. Subsequent studies demonstrated that inadequate sedation, anesthesia, and analgesia may actually increase the risk of ad adverse postoperative outcomes in infants and children. In fact, there are studies demonstrating that certain anesthetics may actually be neuroprotective. The studies began in the early 80s, um, and they began informing us that the undertreatment of neonatal pain could, have, could actually increase morbidity and mortality. Here's just a short list of some of the most commonly cited studies. The list go, this list goes as far back as the early 90s in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the procedures range from everything as complicated as a PDA ligation to as simple as a circumcision. Data in animals have also revealed that painful stimuli in the absence of anesthesia can trigger neuronal cell death. You're going to hear a lot more about neuronal cell death this morning. Providing anesthesia and analgesia even in extreme preemies is now commonplace. So common that in 2007, there were an estimated 6,000 children that received anesthesia in, annually in the United States. At least 25% uh, of them were under the age of 12 years of age. So that would prompt the question, hey, is anesthesia safe? Parents often ask us, and, you know, the anesthesiologist, you know, or say to us, I should say, I am more worried about the anesthesia than anything else. And I also love to ask, is there anything we should watch out for when we get home? I always answer with, it is safer for me to provide anesthesia for your child than it is for you to drive your child here in a car, especially if uh, this kid is behind the controls here. Um, the question of risk is not just about getting the child through the surgery or through the diagnostic procedure, but what are we doing that may have an impact on them at any point in their lives. Nonetheless, the practice of pediatric anesthesia has gotten safer and is, in fact, safe. Why? Well, in the late 80s and 90s, pediatric anesthesia fellowships became more formalized. 
As we became more skilled and knowledgeable, we were able to do more complex procedures on younger and smaller children. Pulse oximeters became commonplace. We no longer had to wait for the surgeon to tell us that the tissues were turning blue before we ran a blood gas and waited for those results. We could tell that hypoxia was occurring in six seconds. So, um, clinically we've gotten much safer. And do I have any evidence to support the fact that clinical anesthesia in, in children is actually safe? This is a landmark study that was uh, published in Lancet in May of 2007. Um, and the goal of this study was to specifically answer whether or not the practice of pediatric anesthesia is safe. Um, this is called the Anesthesia Practice, practice in, in Children Observational Trial, or APRICOT, believe it or not. Um, <clears throat> one of the other things they were looking at was to see what the variability of pediatric anesthesia practice was across different parts of Europe. Um, so they, re, they observed almost 31,000 anesthetics over two weeks for 30 days, and up to 30 days following the, the anesthetic. There was a very loose definition of, of severe critical event, and it was defined like this. A severe critical event is any cardiac, respiratory, allergic, or neurological complication requiring immediate intervention that led to, or could have led to, major disability or death. Now, none of the deaths in this study were actually attributed to the anesthetics. Remember, these patients were followed for 30 days afterwards. Now, while critical events were certainly not rare, 5.2% of the time, the interventions by the anesthesiologist led to good perioperative outcomes. One of the expected observations made here is that the experience of the anesthesiologist had a beneficial effect. So you could almost picture the observer standing there with a clipboard saying, after the critical event was over, how long have you been doing this? Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Clinical science is telling a little bit of a different story as to whether or not anesthesia is actually safe. Pediatric anesthesia, I should say. This article is where most of it started. This is uh, John Olney's lab in, in St. Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I don't know if there's any neonatologists here, but some of you may recognize the name from his work on fetal alcohol syndrome. He was actually interested in the concept of neuroprotection following a CNS injury and began to get worried that some of our sedative and anesthetics um, were creating more apoptosis rather than protecting against apoptosis. He was injecting uh, neonatal rats and rats in utero with ketamine. Meanwhile, <clears throat> I had, uh, I had a, a friend in med medical school actually ask the question, is it okay if we use old exams to study for tests? To which my professor said, just remember, in medicine, the questions never change. Only the answers do. So if you asked, if there, is there any evidence that anesthesia led to neurotoxicity in the developing brain between 1974 and 2000, the answer was definitely no. Ask that same question after 2000, and the answer is definitely yes. So in 2000, there's this, after this initial study was published, there's a major spike in animal literature demonstrating uh, tox neurotoxicity in animal brains. Fast forward with me from 1999 to 2018, um, and this is from a recent review article, there's over 500 quality, probably another 500 not so good, uh, animal studies demonstrating neurotoxicity and structural abnormalities in animal models, including primates. 
The early studies were all protocol to produce neurotoxicity, and they certainly were able to do so with the extreme doses and duration of exposure that they were using. The scientific community begged investigators to rein it in just a bit, so everybody understands the investigators have looked at a multitude of agents up to and including propofol, which is relatively new anesthetic on the grand scheme of things. <clears throat> uh, and yes, there are neurobehavioral tests, neurobehavioral tests that you can do on rodents. Okay, um, we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, eventually they moved from rats back to mice and then on to guinea pigs. Um, and it took a long time for them to realize that they were giving these animals anesthesia and not actually doing, providing any surgery or surgical stimulus. Eventually they were, you know, started injecting rats' legs with formulin. Um, that was considered the surgical stimulus. Okay, non-human primates. So no primates were, no baby monkeys were harmed in the making of this presentation, but boy, were they drugged. In one study that stirred up a lot of controversy, neonatal monkeys were given 24 hours of surgical depth of ketamine and then followed up with neurocognitive testing at one, three, and five months. Surprise, surprise, the investigators found very high degrees of behavioral changes at all three of the intervals. The anesthesia community begged them to relook at this study, especially with 24 hours of high-dose ketamine. They answered that, you know, you often sedate patients in the ICU for over 24 hours, but nobody sedates patients in the ICU with 24 hours of high-dose ketamine, especially uh, you know, beyond surgical death. They eventually repeated the study with lower doses using a single, a single exposure group and a multiple exposure group. And the single exposure group had no statistical difference between controls, and, but the multiple exposure group had much more higher rates of anxiety and hostility. <clears throat> so what's the point of all this? Not really sure. This is the same uh, John Olney that came out with the first study in 1999. This is now August of 2004. And I know we're not sinking our teeth into any of these studies. I'm just trying to give you kind of a, a background here. Um, at, at some point or another, the, the scientific community said, we've, we've got so many animal studies that, that are clearly showing some kind of neurotoxicity, but with the doses and the, 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 the durations that we're using, um, perhaps it's time to start using more human protocols when we design these animal studies. Um, the math on the animal data just was not adding up. In other words, a human brain develops over three years, a rat brain develops over three weeks. So if you give a rat three hours of anesthesia, what does that equate to in a monkey? Regardless of these unanswered questions, in December 14th, 2016, the uh, FDA came out with this statement. I don't even think it's worded all that correctly, grammatically, but this is what they said. At the same time, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, the scientific community is asking for, for more answers. For example, are certain pediatric populations at higher risk? Does the extent of the anesthetic neurotoxic effects depend on cumulative dose? Do underlying diseases or inflammatory processes increase the risk of brain injury? Can diagnostic biomarkers be developed to measure the incidence and extent of the brain injury? And can strategies or interventions be developed to reduce harm? Before we fly into the human data, a quick summary, which is not all that helpful, I know, 
But one thing that is definitely noteworthy on, on this slide, and I think Dr. Brooklyn's going to talk about this, is that the timing of the exposure during some critical window, window is probably the most important part of the whole thing. If you take a given dose and duration outside of this critical window, the degree of pathology is often orders of magnitude less. Paracelsus uh, was considered the father of toxicology, and he once said in, uh, back in the 1400s that anything can be a poison. It just depends on the dose. Um, this is not Paracelsus. This is Morgan Freeman playing, uh, in, in a 1989 movie, he's playing Joe Clark, a Patterson, New Jersey school principal who turned a school around from being take taken over by the state of New Jersey. The it Mr. Clark is referring to here is crack. As he tells his student, if you smoke crack, you might as well jump off the roof since it kills your brain cells. The it in the animal studies is definitely not crack. Is it definitely an anesthetic agent? We're still not sure. There are two main reasons investigators um, moved from rats to guinea pigs to primates. As it turns out, it's very hard to physiologically monitor rodents under anesthesia. Blood pressure, yes, but arterial lines are not that easy. Maybe easier in guinea pigs, much easier in primates, and for the most part, the primate studies did involve physiologic monitoring. It's also much easier to do uh, behavior analysis on primates. I'm just, I'm going to skip ahead a little because I see I'm running out of time. Okay, enter the human data. These are the, um, the big studies. These are prospective studies. I'm going to talk about gas and panda in a second. Um, it takes time to do prospective studies, so the first studies that came out were actually retrospective studies. Um, this one came out in 1999. Um, now, in 2018, there are about 150 retrospective studies that were churned out. In this study, this, these are tables from the same study as the previous slide here. Um, these authors looked at the potential impact of C-section on, brain, on brain, brain development. Of the more than 5,000 children in this cohort, 497 of them were born by C-section, and another 193 mothers received general anesthesia. The study revealed no difference in the, in the incidence of learning disabilities between the two groups. In the same cohort, the investigators retrospectively studied more than 593 children receiving general anesthesia before the age of four years. The incidence of learning disabilities was significantly associated with two or more anesthetic exposures or a cumulative anesthetic duration of more than two hours. Another very commonly cited retrospective, uh, retrospective study, uh, the Netherlands twin study, 500 pairs of monozygotic twins one of whom was exposed to GAA under the age of three years. The authors found no difference in the incidence of learning disabilities between the exposed and unexposed twins. However, the incidence of learning disabilities was higher in pairs of twins in whom one underwent GA compared with pairs where both twins were unexposed to GA. The authors speculated that there might be a vulnerability about some young children, rendering them more susceptible to conditions requiring anesthesia. I'm going to skip this. We're going to go to the prospective studies. Um, gas um, is a GA versus general anesthesia compared to spinal anesthesia. It's uh, headquartered at uh, that other children's hospital up in New England there. Some of you may have heard of. Um, so uh, 
they started recruiting in 2007, and they did, they, uh, children were randomized into either general anesthesia or spinal anesthesia. Um, <clears throat> and this is a very important study because it kind of leaves out um, the children in the, in the spinal anesthesia group were not exposed to any neurotoxic agents. Um, and what they found is that there was strong evidence that just under an hour to, of general anesthesia in infancy does not increase the risk of neurodevelopmental outcomes at two years of age. And the authors um, uh, basically said that this is one of the strongest evidence uh, to date that a brief single exposure anesthetic does not cause neurotoxicity. Panda, uh, headquartered in New York. Uh, it's a multi-center study that examines the long-term effects of anesthesia on cognitive function in children exposed to anesthesia for hernia repair up to 36 months. The neurodevelopmental and cognitive functions are tested at the ages of 8 and 15 years of age and will be compared to siblings who have not had anesthesia. Uh, so at the time of preparing the slides, they only had data for, um, for the children who were tested at eight years post-exposure. Uh, recently, one of my partners went to a meeting where the, the investigator was there, and now, now they have data for the 15-year-old uh, cohort, the 15 post-anesthetic exposure. And in both groups, basically, there's no difference against healthy siblings who are not exposed to anesthesia. Uh, I just want to, before I turn it over to Dr. Brooklyn, I just want to say that um, the, the scientific community is still looking as to whether or not uh, it's definitely the anesthetics. Um, I don't know if any of you have been up in our pre-op area at 7.20 in the morning, but, um, you know, the labs are a controlled area. The OR might be a controlled area, but the rest of the perioperative uh, arena is not necessarily a controlled area. There's a lot more to um, long-term outcomes in, in children who have anesthesia and surgery than just the surgery and the anesthesia. Um, family dynamics, etc. So what do we tell parents? Anesthetics currently in use may result in neurodegeneration in animals. There's risk and uncertainty in applying these findings to these findings in animals to humans. We have to t tell them about, you know, if we don't fix the VSD or if we don't fix the myelomeningocele, what's going to happen to the, what risk we pose to the child. And there's really no uh, unequivocal uh, human data that implicates anesthetic drugs. It might not just be the anesthetic drugs, it might be the whole entire uh, dynamic of pain, inflammation, stress, nutrition, genetics, etc. Another thing I took away from med school is uh, the more theories there are about something, the less we actually know about it. Um, so I'm going to bring up Dr. Brooklyn. <laughs> So, so Mark's gone over sort of the overview of the FDA's black box warning here, um, and particularly some of the uh, clinical trials that have been involved in trying to clarify whether or not that warning is really, really justified. I'm going to delve more into the basic science that informed the FDA's decision and try to at least interpret what some of that basic science may mean as far as its applicability to pediatric patients. Um, there's a lot of data here. I'm only going to skim through it, and I'm going to pick some certain questions that 
that are out there about the applicability of that data. Obviously, there's a lot more than what can fit into, you know, 15-minute talk. So to start with, well, Mark already made this joke, so I'm going to skip through it. Um, <laughs> but the, the FDA based their, their black box warning not just on some of these cohort uh, uh, data sets with pediatric patients following them after general anesthesia and looking at the rates of learning disability, but there was also a lot of rodent data out there, a lot of basic science data, looking at neurotoxicity. Um, impairment of neurogenesis and impairment of uh, cognitive performance in rodents uh, prior to the warning coming out. And that, that did have some impact on why they chose some of the, the, the time window that they did for uh, warning patients away from general anesthetic exposure and the warning itself. There's, as uh, Mark pointed out, there's a lot of research out there in rodents and exposure to general anesthesia and how that affects neurodevelopment. This is just a, a smattering of what's out there, some of the more recent papers. You'll notice that sevoflurane shows up here a lot. That's probably the most widely studied general anesthetic in rodents. Um, but really, as, as pointed out, every anesthetic's been tested. And I will tell you, all of them have shown the same thing. That is, when you expose rat pups or mice pups to general anesthetic, they show impaired neuronal neurogenesis, higher rates of neuroapoptosis, and poor cognitive performance on learning tests. The one caveat among all of those would be probably dexmatomidine. It's a little more of a mixed bag with that drug. But otherwise, pretty much every drug we use in the OR has some neurotoxic effect in rats. This is just an example of one of those studies. This was a, a study where they exposed uh, pregnant rats to sevoflurane and then looked at the pups afterwards, and the pups did worse on a Morris water maze test, which is a test for learning disability. Basically, the rat is put into a pool, and they have to find a submerged platform using visual or spatial cues. And the faster they do it over time, the better they're believed to be doing with learning tests. And then they also looked at how many proliferating neurons were in the prefrontal cortex of these rat pups after the moms were exposed to sevoflurane. In both outcomes, the mothers, or the pups from the mothers who were exposed to sevoflurane had fewer neurons dividing in their prefrontal cortex, that is new neurons, neurogenesis, and they did worse on cognitive tests. This is another example of uh, a study in rodents. Um, in this case, the rat pups were exposed to sevoflurane after they were born, so at day seven. And again, they did worse on a water maze test if they were exposed to sevoflurane. And when the researchers looked for evidence of neuroapoptosis, this case in the hippocampus, which is another region of the brain that's significant for memory and learning, they found for 24 hours after that exposure, there were much higher levels of caspase or neuroapoptosis going on. And again, these are just examples. Every other rodent study basically shows the same thing. Which pathway they, the researcher thinks is involved in these effects may vary, but the duration of the effect may vary. But for the most part, general anesthetic for rodents, young rodents, is bad for their brains. Question, one, the questions I'm going to try to unpack here in critiquing this data and its applicability to pediatrics are these, one, how important is neurogenesis and neuroapoptosis for humans for learning? It's very important in rats. I can tell you multiple studies show that when you impede neurogenesis in young rats or you increase rates of neuroapoptosis, they don't do as well in cognitive tests. But does that really apply to us? Um, Another one that Mark brought up was, what about neurochemical markers trying to indicate the degree of neuronal health after exposure to, neuro, to neurotoxic medicines like general anesthesia? Do we have any of those that work in humans and therefore can define the windows of susceptibility in humans 
for these drugs. And then in general, how applicable are the rodent models? And I put up here adult human models too because it's one thing that Mark didn't talk about. We've been studying general anesthesia in adults for a long time now. There's a lot of data there. And we have a lot more neurochemical um, data because it's much easier to design trials where you get that sort of information from adults than from kids. Um, how applicable is that information to kids? So to start with, the neurogenesis, how, how applicable is neurogenesis and neuroapoptosis to learning? Well, neurogenesis is obviously a very complicated process. Uh, it involves the differentiation of neural stem cells in very specific regions of the brain, the subependymal zone, the granular layer, the rostral migratory stream, these very specific microenvironments under very specific neurotrophic factors to get those stem cells to turn into neurons, to migrate to where they need to be, to synapse, to embed themselves within the connectome, and then, most importantly, to survive. Once they get there, they still have to survive in order to have a meaningful impact, you would assume, on learning. Well, in humans, neurogenesis and whether or not it really occurs in humans after birth has been a debated topic. Um, this is one study from uh, you know, a couple decades back that looked at the total number of neurons that adult humans have. And this went from about the age of 18 to 22 all the way out to, you can see, to 90. And in general, you can see the number of neurons we have generally goes down over the course of our lifetime. This is, I just had a birthday. This was very depressing. <laughs> um, so if there's neurogenesis going on, this paper implied, it's not being overcome by the number of neurons that you're losing. Um, another study out of Sweden, 10 years later, tried to delve a little more into this topic. And what they did is they took, they attacked the, the problem from two, two ends. One, they injected the cancer patients, terminal cancer patients, with BRDU, which is a tracker for proliferating cells, and then um, looked at autopsy to see how many of these proliferating cells were in the brain. And what they did is they, what they saw is they found evidence that there were proliferating cells, but none of those proliferating cells were neurons. They then went back and looked at this in another fashion, and they looked at carbon-14 um, labeling in um, cadaveric brain samples within the Swedish Biorepository Bank. And they dated all the neurons in those samples to find out how old they were. And then they compared that to how old the patients or the subjects were at the time of their death and what they found. And they had everything from infants just a few months old all the way out to adults who were you know, over 70 years old. And what they found was there was not a single neuron in that brain that wasn't at least as old as the patient was. So in other words, there's no evidence that there is any neuronal lineage neurogenesis going on in the human brain after birth, or at least within a few months of birth. That's going to be important later. But it certainly means that neurogenesis, probably, if you impaired it in humans, is unlikely to have a dramatic impact on our cognitive performance, since we're not really doing it anyways. Probably more important is going to be things like neuronal survival, dendritic pruning, synapse formation, that sort of thing. So neuroapoptosis, um, that was the other thing that had been shown in rodents uh, to be affected in general anesthesia. Does neuroapoptosis potentially have an impact on human cognition? That we have a lot more data on, particularly in adults. This is an example of one such study looking at that topic, neuroapoptosis and cognition. This case is Alzheimer's patients. And what they did is they had biopsy-proven Alzheimer's patients in the patients at different stages in the diseases, those who were minimally symptomatic and those who weren't. And what they found was that the more cell die-off that the patients had, the fewer neurons you had, the, few, the lower the neuro, neuronal density, 
the more likely you were to be symptomatic. And that's been borne out in other dementia studies as well. The less neuronal density you have, the more likely you are to have cognitive impairment. So, so does neurogenesis lead to, neuro, uh, to cognitive impairment in humans? Probably not. Does neuroapoptosis affect it? It may, particularly if it's in key regions for cognitions like the prefrontal cortex or the hippocampus. Another question. Do neurochemical markers um, of cognitive performance exist? Can we potentially use those to define windows of susceptibility to general anesthesia in pediatric patients in the way we've been able to establish some windows of susceptibility in rats using neurochemical markers? And the answer to that is a little easier. There, there are markers of neuronal health. One of the most common ones that we actually are using in research right now is BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It's a regionally made neurotrophic factor throughout the brain that binds to a variety of receptors. The most important one is tyrosine kinase B, and it promotes neuronal differentiation out of the stem cell line and neuronal survival. And there have been tons of studies, particularly in adults, looking at BDNF as it relates to cognitive performance. And this is one study out of Hopkins that looked at brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor in spine patients undergoing general anesthesia. These are all adult patients. Uh, they haven't done this in these studies in PEATS yet. But they took a sample before general anesthesia began, and then they took it on the hour all throughout the case. And some of these spine cases went for a while. But the general t trend here is that the longer you were under anesthesia, the lower your BDNF levels went. And when the researchers looked at cognitive performance after surgery, the patients who had the largest percent decreases from baseline and BDNF levels were mo most likely to have post-operative delirium and poor cognitive performance. And that's been shown in many other perisurgical studies as well. As I said, we have a lot more data in adults when it comes to general anesthesia than we do in kids. Question is, does that marker, can we use that marker in kids now to help define what the window of susceptibility is for kids undergoing general anesthesia and the likely to develop cognitive dysfunction later. Well, BDNF is expressed pretty consistently throughout a human's lifetime. Um, it peaks very shortly after we're born and then kind of levels off and stays where it is. So at first pass, it should be usable. But when you look more closely at BDNF, there's an issue. It is not expressed uniformly throughout the brain. And in fact, the areas of the brain, like the um, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, which are most important for cognitive function and learning, have very low levels of BDNF throughout infancy and adolescence. It's really not until we hit our young adult years that those levels start to spike up to adult levels. And the receptor that BDNF binds to, tyrosine kinase B, is also differentially expressed throughout life, our lifetime. The tyrosine kinase B positive receptor, which is the the receptor that tends to drive things towards neuronal survival and differentiation, presumably the, the arm that would be most useful for uh, cognitive function, actually isn't expressed very much after infancy, which also kind of fits with the fact that we don't see a whole lot of neuronal neurogenesis after birth in humans. So how, so just sort of thinking about the pathways, it doesn't necessarily make sense that BDNF is going to be as reliable a marker in kids. And then the last thing I'm going to touch on here is the applicability of animal and adult models to, uh, to pediatrics. And certainly the data, as I've seen, has, it informs us in some ways, but there are some key differences in, in pediatric patients versus adults and 
particularly versus rats. And as Dr. Mandelicato pointed out, timing is, seems to be very important when it comes to general anesthesia exposure. Our susceptibility to these drugs and the susceptibility of our brains to these drugs seems to be time dependent. And there was a great paper that came out in uh, the British Journal of Anesthesia two years ago looking at exactly this fact. This was in rodents. They took rats and they exposed them to general anesthetic and they did it at different ages and they looked at different regions within the brain. And this is different than other studies that either look just at the prefrontal cortex or just the hippocampus or just did a global view of the brain. These guys really honed in on different regions and they looked for evidence of neuroapoptosis in those different regions. And what they found was each region in the rat brain had a different time during which it was susceptible to uh, general anesthesia's neuroapoptotic effects. And outside of those windows, there was almost no effect in neuroapoptosis in each of those regions. And they seemed to be all over the place until the researchers started looking at when, do each, when does each region of the rat's brain reach its peak period of neurogenesis. Because it's not consistent. The brain kind of fills in different regions at different time points. And that's the same for us as it is for rats. And the peak periods of susceptibility to anesthesia, when it was most, when that region was most likely to undergo neuroapoptosis after exposure, was within two days to two weeks after that peak period of neurogenesis. At once that region got beyond that window, it really wasn't, a, there was no increase in neuroapoptosis in that region after anesthesia exposure. And as I said before, um, in humans, neurogenesis doesn't seem to really occur after birth. This is, in rats, neurogenesis, neuronal neurogenesis continues to occur one to two weeks after the rat's born. But at least in humans, we really don't have any evidence that we're doing any neuro, we're making any new neurons after we're born, at least within a few months after we're born. So how applicable then is all of this data in rodents showing impaired neuronal neurogenesis and increased neuroapoptosis and poor cognitive performance to humans if our brains aren't developing at the same pace as rodents do. Well, that's really what we're trying to, to still figure out in the research community and what you know, we're going to try to tackle a little bit here at, at CCMC as well, trying to define those windows. Um, hopefully in the, in the panel we can try to share our thoughts on this a little bit, as well as our opinion based on this data and the skepticism we have for some, some of the rodent data, as well as the knowledge that we have to be um, judicious um, in our application of sedatives at this very sensitive time window for our, our patients. How do we proceed clinically with that? Thanks. <laughs>